Matthew chapter 27, and we'll continue our study through the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Matthew. That's the title of this book, but it's an interesting title when you think about it because there's debates by Christians as to what the gospel is. And some of those debates have included discussions about whether or not the gospel that you read about in, let's say, 1 Corinthians 15 and the Apostle Paul, his gospel, is it different than Matthew's gospel, the gospel in the gospels? Does the New Testament have two different gospels? Maybe if that question isn't of interest to you, let me put it this way. When we're going to read Matthew 27, when you read the entire chapter, it says nothing about Jesus dying for your sins. The death of Jesus, as it is recorded in what I'm about to read, and if you read the entire chapter, Matthew never says, and so Jesus died for your sins. Now, you can turn back to chapter 26, and you can hear Jesus explain that The Passover is being fulfilled in the Lord's Supper, and he is providing a new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. But here's the specific question I'm thinking through as we read this text, as we apply it to our lives, and we think about its significance. Why have Christians for the longest time been summarizing that what it means to be a Christian, if you're here today and you're a Christian, it's because you believe that Jesus Christ died historically, A real human person came into this world, fully God and fully man, and he died. Nobody denies historically, unless they're crazy, cuckoo, not really thinking about history in what any kind of sense. Nobody says that Jesus didn't die for our sins. Did he die for sins? Maybe you've not even thought about that before. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that is the claim that makes someone become non-Christian to Christian. It's not just accepting that Jesus died. It's that it did something. It accomplished something. He died for sins. And here's the interesting thing. We can, from history, prove or disprove to some degree of reliability that a man named Jesus walked the earth, both from the Bible and outside the Bible, and from history, both from the Bible and outside the Bible, we can prove that Jesus died. But you know what you can't prove from history? That it was for our sins. How do you prove that? I can prove that something may exist. Here's a cake. What's the cake for? Is it for your birthday or for your anniversary? Only the person that is making and baking and giving the cake can determine its purpose. And that's why we need God's word. We need God's words to instruct us that Jesus Christ died, not just historically and not just the events of how, but why he died. He died for our sins. Seven plus years ago, 
the very first sermon that ever happened at Embassy Church was in September of 2013. And that first sermon was 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, that which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That was the first sermon at our church. The point then is the point now. The center of Embassy Church on the first gathering ever till whenever we close down or Jesus returns should and must always be the gospel. Christ died for our sins. But that was Paul. Paul said that. First Corinthians said that. And most of you may not really care about this argument because you're like, well, it's all God's word. I believe that. We believe that. But is Matthew doing something different? Is he saying something different? Why doesn't Matthew say it as succinctly and as shortly as Paul does here? Christ died for our sins. He never says it. Don't believe me? Open your Bibles. Let's read them. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 32, the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's the account about the death of Jesus. As they went out, they found a man, Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they entered, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, 
Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So I wasn't lying to you. I just read you the account of the death of Jesus. You can read over it again. You can double check, triple check. Matthew never says, Jesus died for our sins, like I just read from 1 Corinthians 15, the way Paul does. So what is this? Why should you care? Why does this matter? What is the significance of the death of Jesus according to Matthew? Let's not jump to Paul and bring Paul into Matthew. Does Paul teach the same thing that Paul does? Did Christ die for our sins? Or is Matthew just a historical biographer? Because all he care about is giving you the facts. Here's what happened. Oh, you make sense of the facts, whatever you want. Friends, we don't have to choose. These are not two choices that we got to try and figure out. History versus theology. Events that happened versus the significance of the events. Matthew is a theological biography. Every phrase and description is dripping with Old Testament imagery. And it would take us three more years if we went as slow as I could go. But we're going to need at least two weeks on this passage, which is fitting because we're three weeks away from Easter. I don't know if you realize that. We're three weeks away from Easter. And it is in God's providence quite fitting that we have been camping out here, walking our way through Matthew 27 and the cross of Christ, leading up to Matthew 28, Easter Sunday. So let's dive into our text with this one big idea. Jesus' death in its history gives us the answer of its meaning, or to put it another way, how Jesus died provides the answer for why Jesus died. I think I like it that way, the simplest. How Jesus died. The events, as Matthew tells them, are not just, oh, those are the events. How he tells the story tells us why Jesus died. And spoiler alert, it's nothing different from what Paul says. Christ died for our sins. So if you fall asleep, stop paying attention, get distracted, the kids take you out into the hallway and you miss the sermon, that's the point. How Jesus died communicates why Jesus died for our sins. So let's look at how Jesus died, starting in verse 45. Now, From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. How did Jesus die, according to verse 45? In the darkness. How did he die? He died in the dark. 
sixth hour. What does that equal? What is the, the clock that they're working with? That means 12 p.m. Noonday. Like right now. 12 o'clock. Go outside. It's gorgeous today. Beautiful. The sun is shining with all of its brilliance. Could you imagine? You're supposed to. Walking out right now from this beautiful sunny day and all of a sudden pitch black darkness. How did that happen? The how question answers the why question. Wasn't that the big idea? How equals why. How did this happen? And of course, we're modern people, so we think science is better than anything else. Our hope and savior is what man can produce with our great knowledge and technology. God, huh? who needs God? We have advancement and progress. So what does mighty man say? It must have just been a solar eclipse. There was no supernatural acts of God. This was a solar eclipse. Wrong. How it happened. That doesn't fit. It can't work that way. How long was the darkness, friends? How long does a solar eclipse darkness last? Not three hours. So it's not a solar eclipse. Are you sure? Yeah. Really sure. How are you sure? It's the Passover. When does Passover happen? When there's a full moon? Can you have a solar eclipse and a full moon at the same time? Is it Passover? Yes, it is. So can it be a solar eclipse and Passover all at the same time? No, it cannot. So is it a solar eclipse? No. So how did it happen? How did Jesus die? In utter, complete darkness. How? Well, maybe it was dust. They're in the Middle East. Sometimes there's these dust storms, and it can get really dark because of all the stirring up of the dust, and it'll last for days, not just hours. Dust storm, figured it out. We're so smart. We got our science. It's not a dust storm. Why is it not a dust storm? Well, why was it not a solar eclipse? What was the answer? Passover. Why would it not be a dust storm? Answer, Passover. What time of year is Passover? Not the dry season. Hmm. So much for the wisdom of men. Those are the options that they give. Perhaps, perhaps how Jesus died in the darkness from God, the answer is the Passover. Think about the Passover. How did Jesus die? In darkness, during the Passover. Can you think of another time when there was deep darkness? If you can't, it's Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. I'll just help you out. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. A darkness to be felt. 
So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. How did Jesus die, according to verse 45? In a supernatural darkness from the judgment of God. A darkness that could be felt. What I just read to you was the ninth of what was ten plagues of judgment on the people of Egypt from the book of Exodus. In other words, the origin story of the Passover, the very time that Jesus is dying, had a supernatural darkness preceding the tenth and final plague, which was what? The death of a firstborn. Darkness first, then the death of a son. Darkness and death. How did Jesus die according to Matthew 27, 45? In the darkness. So then, how does the how question answer the why question? Why did Jesus die? Well, what is the significance of the darkness in Exodus and in the Passover? How does darkness communicate judgment And for that, we've got to start from the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Have you ever missed that? Reading through the familiarity of Bible passages you've heard too many times? Verse 2, Genesis 1, and the earth was formless, it was void, it was empty, it was chaos, it was wild, it was wasteland, it was wilderness, it was nothing of beauty or majesty, it was darkness, just utter darkness. And then, verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there be light. Creation begins in darkness. The beginning of the Bible begins with utter, complete dark. And then it moves to light. Therefore, theologically and in the story of the world, when the lights go out, the world turns back to darkness. This is a signal of creation starting and then being undone. So when the sun, moon, and stars fall from the sky, all of those symbols are signs that a work of creation is moving backwards and reverse. So we should not be surprised when we become acquainted with and familiar with the Old Testament prophets and the language of judgment. This is the language of judgment from the prophets. First, Isaiah 5.30. It will be darkness and distress. Even the light will be dark in the clouds. Isaiah 8:22 Distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away to the darkness. Or Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 15, it will be a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of clouds and a day of thick darkness. 
And then there's Ezekiel, who's describing the coming judgment of God when he writes, And God will cover the heavens, and he will darken all of the stars, and he will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights of the heavens will be darkened over you, and it will set darkness all over the land. Death, judgment, exile is synonymous in the Old Testament with the symbol of darkness. So when Jesus speaks of people in his ministry being handed over to the punishment of eternal death, Gehenna, what we say and translate as hell, he describes that place as utter, outer, complete darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Put it together, Phil. What are you trying to say? Darkness is uncreation. It is death. Darkness is the darkness of death. So when we get to Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Jesus died in the dark, a kind of darkness that can be felt. How does that explain why he died? Because darkness is a sign throughout the scriptures of moving backwards in creation, of undoing creation. And the undoing of creation is to not bring life, but to bring death. So when you read about the darkness in Matthew 27, verse 45, you should be thinking, creation is moving backwards. It is not leading to the life of Jesus, but to his death. Or to put it a whole different way, but saying it the same, A world is ending. A nation is ending. Cosmic descriptions for the fallen world, the fallen, sinful, cursed world is coming to an end. So the sun is being blotted out. The moon does not give its light. The stars are falling from the sky. That's the way the Bible talks when a world is ending. A kingdom is coming crashing down. So just like God's judgment to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, God is bringing judgment in Matthew 27, verse 45. Why was there darkness in the ninth plague? Because of the judgment, the righteous, right judgment for an evil, wicked man who was murdering and slaughtering slaughtering infants one after another after another. Killing babies, drowning them in the water. Read the story again. This is not some righteous, innocent man. An evil, wicked tyrant is being rightfully judged. And it is described in the ninth plague as darkness. This is what the just and righteous God of the Bible does. He says to them, You have brought about darkness in the land by taking life and reversing it with death. You think you're God? No, 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 you are not. So we will put you in the darkness and we will take your sons and they're going to be taken away. Your firstborn, life for life, eye for an eye, righteous justice is on display in the book of Exodus. So fast forward now to the days of Jesus. Here we are. Jesus is not in Egypt, he's in Jerusalem. But there's a new pharaoh in the land, a new king 
who's murdering Israelite baby boys. It's almost like the story's repeating itself over. Do you remember this story? Do you remember? It's been three years, but do you remember how Matthew begins? Do you remember Christmas? Do you remember that Matthew begins with King Herod being tricked by the wise men? And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, he becomes so angry and furious that he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under. Herod's another pharaoh. He is embodying all that pharaoh was, a baby murderer of God's people. Herod thinks that he's the rightful king of the Jews, but he is none other than another king that is going to be judged by God. So if Herod's the new pharaoh, what does that make the people and the land of Israel? They're Egypt. And this, I believe, is the best explanation to one of the biggest puzzles in the Gospel of Matthew. Three years ago, you can go back, I already taught this, but most of you weren't here three years ago. So it might be good to remember that in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew quotes Hosea chapter 11, when this whole event is taking place, where Herod's wanting to destroy infant babies, Israelite sons. And it says this in Matthew 2 verse 13, now when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is Hosea chapter 11. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the puzzling question. Number one, that's not a predictive prophecy. Number two, the details don't work, at least on the surface. Jesus is not leaving Egypt when this prophecy is apparently being fulfilled. He's leaving Jerusalem. So how is him leaving Jerusalem as he is departing like the Israelites did in Exodus from the new Pharaoh of Herod? How is that fulfillment of prophecy? Wouldn't he need to be leaving Egypt? And I think the best explanation that I gave before and give it again is... Egypt is now Israel, and Herod is now the new Pharaoh. These people are embodying the same spirit and actions that we read about in the book of Exodus. And so the master storyteller, Matthew, begins with you thinking about the book of Exodus and the salvation that's going to be brought where the judgment of God comes and delivers Israel through the waters and ends his gospel. Master storytelling. The beginning of the end. Bookends. Jesus was born in darkness in a land that was just like Egypt, just like Moses. But his birth was marked off in that moment by a bright, shiny light, a star in the midst of the darkness. So now here we are, Matthew 27, at the end of the gospel. And Israel and its rulers are just like Egypt still. Israel is now Egypt the ruling kings and government officials are wanting to put to death the son of the Israelites, Jesus the Christ. And so in the same way, God brings down his plague of darkness 
And then he brings down his plague of the death of the firstborn through Jesus Christ. And just like in Genesis chapter 1, God starts with darkness, but through the darkness he brings the light. This is why the prophets would say things like this. This is Isaiah 9-2. The people who are walking in darkness will one day see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. In order to get to a new day, today's Sunday, you want to make it to Monday? Yep. Well, in order to get to a new day, we have to go through the darkness. In order to get to a new morning, you have to get through the night. In order for a new world to be created, the present world needs to be decreated. In order to bring about new life, it's going to have to come through death. And this is why we sing, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. For thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness because morning by morning, new mercies I see. All that I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. So why did I say at the beginning of the service, I want you to never sing that song again because I want you to not wake up the same ever again. I want you, every time you wake up and you see the sun again, you know that you went through the darkness and the new light that has bursted forth in that new day, the sun rising is a symbol every single day that God is going to bring new creation through the darkness. Every single morning that you have life and can wake up today, you're alive, you're awake, there is new mercy today. It is a reminder on a daily basis that God is in the business of taking the darkness of this world and going through the darkness to bring the light of new life and creation. This is what's happening in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. There was darkness for three hours. Then there was death. But through this death, it accomplished something. It brought the light of life through the Son of Jesus the Christ. So how Jesus died in the darkness explains why he died. In order to overcome the darkness and bring about the new light of creation, the, of the new creation, Jesus had to die and take on the judgment of God. You do not see Matthew saying he died for our sins, but you do see Matthew very, I think, clearly saying that Jesus is bearing the judgment and the wrath of God for sinners like Israel and Egypt and Pharaoh and Herod and you and me. Hopefully you know now why Christians have summarized the gospel in this one simple little statement. Christ died for our sins. Matthew and Paul are not saying two different things. The darkness is here to tell us how Christ died and why he died. For the sins of the world to bring a new world into being. If your gospel is only about your individual forgiveness of sins, as good and as glorious and as wonderful as that is, it is a small gospel. 
The real biblical gospel is the entire cosmos being remade and made new through the death of Jesus Christ, absorbing and consuming himself with the death and darkness that all of us deserve. He is coming to defeat the darkness and bring about the light in the new creation. He did it and it has already been inaugurated and every day you wake up, see the sun and say new mercies are new today. But back to Genesis 1 because there's a further connection with Genesis 1 and the very next verse in Matthew 27. How did God bring about creation in Genesis 1. How did we go from darkness to light in verse 3? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1 and 2 is introducing for ancient peoples a well-known Babylonian story of creation origin. Two gods that fight against each other. The wind god versus the deep god or the sea god. That's the well-known story when Genesis is being written. So when you read verse 2 in Genesis chapter 1, you've got the spirit, the wind of God, and you've got the deep and the darkness. And if you're reading this as a Babylonian or an ancient person, you're like, all right, we're ready. We know how this story goes. There's a wind god and there's a sea god and they're about to duke this out and fight. That's what's about to go down. And then you read the very next verse, verse 3, and it says, And then Elohim said, let there be light. And there was light. And then if you're a Babylonian ancient person, you're scratching your head and you're like, wait, that's not the way the stories normally go. He just says something and it happens? Where's the fighting? Where's the war? Where's the sea god versus the wind god? This is what's going on in the book of Genesis. With calm, king-like, royal assurance of his absolute power, omnipotence, the god of the universe says, let there be light, and there's light. No, no other gods. No rivals, no wind god versus sea god, just God speaking with his power. So then you might ask, how does then God bring about new creation? If Genesis 1 is about the start of the original creation, but that has been scarred and marred and ruined by sin and death. Well, how does he bring about new creation? Verse 46, Matthew chapter 27. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How did Jesus die is the main question he died in darkness. Now we see he died screaming. Screaming is the word. Not just he shouted or cried. He's screaming these words. It says in verse 46, 
it's now the ninth hour. And what did we see in verse 45 about the darkness lasted from the sixth hour till when? The ninth hour. So presumably, you have darkness over the course of three hours. Sounds similar to the Exodus story. Darkness for a period of three, three days. And from darkness, that led to death of the firstborn. Darkness, death of the firstborn. But before that death is specifically described, we get the word of God being spoken from the cross. We hear the voice of God. But this time, unlike in Genesis chapter 1, we do not hear the voice of a calm, assured, fully omnipotent, absolutely powerful God creating the heavens and the earth. This time, in order to bring about light from the darkness, it is the voice of dereliction. The cry and the scream of absolute and utter abandonment. It is the cry of a man in distress, anguished in prayer. It is the cry of a righteous man who has been abandoned by his friends, his enemies, and then ultimately the closest and most intimate companion, the Heavenly Father. It is a voice of lamentation and of bitter weeping. The shriek of the Egyptian mothers and the fathers does nothing to the shriek of Jesus as he hangs on the cross and experiences all of that pain and suffering that those Egyptian and Israelite mothers experienced when they saw these soldiers rip babies from their chest, throw them into a river, or kill them with their swords. Here on the cross, Jesus takes the place of all the evil that has happened by Egyptians, Jews, and all of humanity. And he takes upon the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words of God that bring forth the new creation. Genesis 1, God spoke and there was light. Matthew 27, God in Christ speaks as he hangs on a cross. And when he does so, it does not bring forth light. It articulates, it gives shape to, it helps you feel the darkness that he just experienced for those last three hours. But it's precisely because of that darkness, precisely because of these words, that in the midst of the darkness, being overwhelmed by it all, Jesus overcomes. He does not overcome the darkness with a calm, confident, omnipotent word. He overcomes the darkness by entering fully into it. Overcoming the darkness by sharing and participating in it. He overcomes the darkness by speaking the actual thoughts and feelings, the prayers of lamentation and forsakenness. He overcomes the brokenness of our creation and brings about a new creation by entering in fully the God-forsakenness of our land. How did Jesus die? By screaming a scream that completely embodies the pain and the suffering and the weight of the darkness that was just felt. Why did Jesus die? To take upon himself the curse 
and the judgment of our sin to be the full and total payment and judgment of God in our place as our substitute so that we could be saved. So that those who are far off could be brought near. So that those who are not his people could say, that is now my God. Because he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I can cry, that is my God, my God. And he has accepted me. So that all of the nations of the earth, both Jews and Gentiles, would hear the cry of dereliction. See his death and say, just like the centurion did. Look down at verse 54. What does the Jewish non-Jewish, Gentile, Roman soldier say when he sees the death of Jesus. This is not just facts. Oh, Matthew just wants to tell you some facts about how it happened. He wants to declare to you that what the Jewish people couldn't say as they mocked him, oh, he thinks he's the son of God. It's the non-Jewish Roman that just killed Jesus that says, this is truly the son of God. What irony! What foolishness! So will this be you? Will you be more like the Jews who say, the Son of God, really? That's your plan? That's how you're going to save the world? Or are you going to be like the centurion who says, this is the Son of God, truly. This is the Son of God. Will you believe it? Do you believe that this is what God is like? Or do you think God's out to get you and zap you? Or is he out to save you and rescue you? Brother, sister, friend, whoever you are today, repent of your sins, the very sins that are undoing the creation of your world, your family, your marriage, your life. Repent of those sins because those sins are undoing creation, destroying your life and the world. See them for what they truly are, deserving of the judgment and wrath of God. But know that when you see Jesus in the utter darkness, crying the cry of dereliction, he is absorbing every last bit of that judgment and wrath because he is for us, not against us. Jesus did not just die to take away the penalty of our sins. He died to take away the power and the presence of your sins in your life, and in the whole world. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you. The gospel that you believed, the gospel in which you take your stand. All I've been doing today is trying to remind you of the gospel. The gospel that you believed the gospel that we take our stand, the gospel that should be the center of your life and the center of this church, the gospel that can be summed up with one simple phrase, Jesus Christ died. And that meant something. What did it mean? For our sins. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come now in the name of Jesus. By the merits of the cross, alone. We come now as broken people with new hearts, with new creation. Many of us, Father, many of us are experiencing the darkness of this world, the darkness that's in our heart, 
the undoing of your creation, the darkness in our society, the darkness in the politics and the government, the darkness in our community. The darkness is feeling like it's everywhere and overwhelming. And so we need to be reminded today, Father, would you remind us that there is a new mercy today? The sun came up. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. Morning by morning, you want to remind us that there is not just a creation, but a new creation, and that the new day has already dawned through the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, and the outpouring of the Spirit of God in our hearts. God, we need your grace. We need the gospel. Desperately. We need it for our sins. We need it for our society. We need it for this church. And we're praying, would you pour afresh upon this church a passion for reminding each other of the gospel? Not Christianese. Not just a thing we say because that's the right thing to say, but truly trying to understand, fully embracing the weight and the meaning of the darkness and how Christ has absorbed it and taken it on and not by pushing it aside, but by going right through it. Oh God, I pray that these next couple weeks, as we get nearer and nearer to Easter, that you will do something special in our hearts and in our lives as a church community. We don't deserve it, but we're praying, we're asking. Bless us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.